G'day and welcome to the potty in which I connect with some of the most influential guests from across Australia and the globe to share their very inspirational stories. I was born with cystic fibrosis, a chronic illness in which I was told would most certainly rule my life. But like many of the incredible humans that I have on this show, I'm on a mission to prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we choose to respond to them. I'm your host, the captain of the ship and the man in charge, Bradley J. Drybra, and this is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day, and welcome to what's a really special episode of the podcast as I go back through the archives and extract the best lessons of 2023. This year was such an exciting year for me. I had the opportunity every week to sit down with an incredible guest from a diverse walk of life. And that's what the show is all about. It's about hearing human story and taking the moments, the insight, the lessons from their stories, the lessons from how they've overcome the hardship that we all experience in our own unique context so that we can grow, we can learn, we can develop as human beings And I love that story and conversation can do that for us. And I had an absolute platter of very valuable, very interesting, very kind, amazing human beings to learn from this year. And I've sat down with a fine tooth comb and gone through the six episodes and particularly six moments from those episodes, or maybe even sometimes a few moments from those episodes clustered together that have informed changes informed new ideas, informed new ways of living for me in my own life and I believe could have a big impact on you as well. There's a reason I've formatted this episode the way that I have because I believe the chronological order of hearing them from top to toe ultimately is maybe the order that we need to learn these lessons in and so I think that you'll get plenty from today's podcast. I'm going to try and keep it under an hour in total. There's around 45 minutes of clips and moments that come from the episodes themselves and hopefully only about 15 minutes of me breaking down some of those moments in between. So we're going to get right into it but before we do I just want to give you a little bit of a rundown of the guests that are going to feature on today's episode. Our first guest is Katarina Kuhn. She's a neuroscientist and speaks particularly about the neuroscience of self-knowledge I met Katarina at an event at the start of the year. I was lucky enough to catch the end of her keynote at the Humankind Conference, and I thought it was just incredible. Later the next day, I was invited to meet her. She ran me through an assessment that she developed called called the Deep Sphere Assessment. Ultimately, it spits out results after answering 10 to 15 minutes of questions and tells you how you're hardwired as a human being ultimately informed by the five primal emotions of human behavior. It's a very interesting um, way of looking at yourself almost from an outside perspective, from a very scientific perspective. And to me, it made a whole lot of sense. I had a lot of friends and even some of you listeners of the podcast who caught the episode with Katerina earlier in the year, who ran through and did the results on this test and were blown away with how accurate it was. And so I think that you'll get a lot from this first moment of the podcast. Ultimately, we move on to a moment with a good friend of mine now, Joshua Hares. Joshy is responsible for an incredible fashion label called Porter James Sport out of Auckland, New Zealand. I'm just such a fan of this man, his ethos, his way of life, 
he's a very kind-hearted human being who I've had the pleasure of um, first being acquainted with on the podcast, but then becoming a friend of a, a guy who I spend a lot of time speaking to and find a lot of wisdom um, in our conversations and the way that he lives his life. I'm very similar cat sometimes. It was like looking in the mirror as I spoke to him. And I really love his concepts around, you know, an ideal day and how that informs an ideal life. And I think that you'll get a lot from it too. My third guest on the podcast is none other than the founder and CEO of $3.6 billion business, Whoop, and it's Will Ahmed. Will Ahmed is an incredible human being. He has such a fascinating story. And frankly, it was just unbelievable that I was given the opportunity to speak to Will for an hour and a half, two hours um, one morning earlier this year from his HQ over in Boston in the USA. And one of the things that Will really speaks about is obviously he's created a health and wellness business that has taken not just the athletic world, but the everyday world of human beings who want to enhance their wellness. It's taken it by storm. And I love how he speaks about optimizing your life for what you're trying to achieve, for the kind of human being that you're trying to become. And that's different for all of us. And he speaks about some of the health habits to do that. Then we flow into our, our fourth guest, our fourth, fourth feature, which is other than the polarizing but very inspirational neurosurgeon, Dr. Charlie Teo. Um, this episode plastered the podcast across mainstream media. Charlie has um, been through the ringer um, legally this year, um, fighting court cases and battles, um, frankly, for things that I believe um, have been pushed and stretched by the media and the medical fraternity to try and out him. But this man has saved thousands and thousands of lives. And the response to the podcast really spoke heavily of that. You know, it was um, a lot of praise that come Charlie's way. A lot of people messaging me saying that he'd saved their family's lives, their mum's lives, their dad's lives, their siblings' lives. And just such an inspirational guy. It was a pleasure to sit down with him at a very testing time of his life. And one of the things he really opened up about was the purpose he found in helping people, the purpose he found in brain surgery and saving lives. And there's just an incredible story that he tells about that. We then flow into an episode that I personally really enjoyed this year with Gary Jubelin. Gary Jubelin was one of the most celebrated homicide detectives in the country. He worked on cases like the Bowerville murders and the William Tyrrell case. And Gary, um, unfortunately, was forced out of the police force this year and criminally charged um, with some allegations of things that he did. And he owns up to those allegations but ultimately speaks about the importance of knowing your values and how life is not always black and white. And he once thought it was. He said there is a gray area. And ultimately for him, what's become black and white is not the law, but rather living according to your values. And it was a very interesting conversation about that. I also put in a moment from that episode with Gary where he speaks about obsession and how obsession can also be, can be the thing that creates our greatness. It can be the thing that pushes us towards achieving greatness in our career and our path in life. But that same obsession can be our downfall. And for him, he speaks about the personal toll that it's taken on family relationships. And I found it to be a very interesting contrast between, you know, essentially the same, the same value or the same skill set being something rooted in a lot of upside and downside too. Um, then we flow on to our our sixth moment, our final moment from the podcast, which is with Bruce O'Brien. Bruce was convicted of murder 
a crime he did not commit and spent 29 to 30 years behind bars in Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York. Bruce's mindset and his, essentially his response to adversity, how he faced it, the mindset that he took on the growth that he, that he found in prison is ultimately inspiring. I can honestly say, hand on my heart, I do not believe I could respond as incredibly as he did. He has such a gratitude. He, you know, one of the things that Bruce always says is oceans of gratitude. And let me tell you, he's not lying. He's just one of those guys that is grateful. He's a good human being. I'm so proud of how far that man's come. And I get joy out of seeing him living life now on the outside. And I'm sure that you'll get joy from the moment listening to him on the podcast. So without further ado, let's dive into our moments. First up, Katarina Kuhn. Probably the biggest challenge and the most important one for people to tackle is the question of, and it is a big question, who am I? And without understanding who you are, all the self-help in the world won't truly ever solve your problems or get you closer to solving your problems. I guess a big part of what you do is around helping people discover and find answers to that question. When we talk about human personality and particularly the hardwiring of their brain, is it something that we can change as individuals or is it something that we have to learn to live and work with? So I think it is useful to understand what your general disposition and makeup is because science very clearly shows that we're not all born equal. We have genetic uh, biochemical um, algorithms running in our minds from very, very early on. Um, we're mammals and we're programmed in certain ways. Um, and so it's very useful to understand that predisposition because you want to work with that and not against that. It doesn't work. So there are very uh, interesting studies that already show that at the age of four months you can detect dispositions in infants that are very, very reliably carried through into later life. So there is no denying that we're not all born equal. So I think we do well understanding that very foundation that we have at the deepest level of our brain that shapes us into who we are and what we're, for example, then later in life more likely to connect with, more likely to enjoy. If we discover that, I think it's a lot easier to take a shortcut and step straight into what makes us happy and straight into who we are best mm. you know, connected with. And, and all those things that often take us a lifetime to discover or we never do um, because there's a lot of things that sidetrack us from that and there's a lot of you know, influences that can distract us um, from that quest. So I think it does require a look at our nature, but then of course we have uh, a lot of agency in how we express that nature. And I think, mm. but we can't get around knowing that nature first because I think then we have a choice in how we want to express it. So we talked about your personal example for, um, as one example. You've got a, uh, a high care drive, right, and a high rank drive. And the care drive, and I guess we can talk about that in, in a bit more detail, makes you very nurturing, caring, really wanting to make someone else's life better, and very giving uh, in nature. But it also predisposes you to seek social proof and compare and so on. So I think because I know a little bit about your story, had you not become aware of that, it would, have, it would be a lot harder to work against that undercurrent. Mm. Being aware of that, great. Now you've got the, free, the freedom to take a decision based on that, how you want to express that drive. 
do you really express that drive and that need for connection by making someone's day better whilst knowing what your path is? You don't need to compare it. Or do you want to get sucked into living a preconceived life where you're trying to fit into the group to survive? It's the same primal emotion system of care uh, underneath that, but you can choose to express it in very different ways. So I love this first clip. You know, one of the things that Kat and I really bonded on is this idea that there is no self-development or self-help without first having self-knowledge and understanding. You know, you can consume all of the self-help books in the world. You can consume hours upon hours of podcasts, ultimately with the goal of developing as a human being. But if you don't know what you're trying to develop, what you need to work on, what your strengths and weaknesses are, and ultimately how you're wired, how will you ever develop? That's one of the things that we found to be incredibly important from the work that Kat was doing is that in understanding first these big three questions that Ben Crow, the mindset master, speaks about is who am I, what do I want, how do I get there? They're the three questions that we're trying to answer as human beings. And ultimately the first answer informs how we then answer the second two. And I just think this is a really interesting part of the podcast to, to kick things off, to really dive into first understanding who you are so that the rest of what we do here today and the rest of these lessons soak in a little bit better. But let me tell you, you probably won't come to the answer after five minutes of a podcast, nor will you come to the answer after a couple of days of thinking about this. It's an ever-evolving thing. Um, but as former guest of the podcast, Rich Davini, says that the quality of our lives are directly proportionate to the quality of questions we ask ourselves. And it's important to consistently ask those questions of ourselves so we can monitor our evolution. We can monitor who we are and what we want. I find it fascinating looking back at my results of this podcast and we released an episode where Kat had actually done my deep sphere assessment and had spoken to me about how my story makes sense of these results. And I found it to be really interesting that she said, I had quite a rare result in the fact that I'm high care and high rank at the same time. And when you hear my story and you understand how I've grown up and the kind of human being that I am, it makes a lot of sense. But one of the lessons that Kat's taught me, and this was off mic after our chat earlier this year, is Kat said to me, Brad, I see something in you that is incredibly special. She said, whilst your results are rare, the results that you share are the same results that I've seen in high achievers across the world, um, which is quite flattering. But frankly, the reason I'm telling you this is because she said, but let me warn you of one thing, that all of the success you have, be it reaching the, the top ranks of podcast charts, be it speaking on the biggest stages around the world or whatever it may be, none of that success and none of that rank or status will mean anything if you can't look to your side and see the people you love. She said, being high rank and high care means that whilst you achieve, you have to have the people around you that you love dearly, your family, your friends, to enjoy that success with. And that was an incredible lesson for me and something I do not take for granted. And I'm so blessed to say that I have those people in my corner and I make that a priority. I want to play this next two moments with Kat and I think that you'll get a lot from them. Every primal emotion system has a really important evolutionary purpose. We wouldn't have all the primal emotion systems that we have in our minds if they didn't fulfill a very important purpose. It is how we choose to express them or how we learn unconsciously, mostly, to express them that can be adaptive or maladaptive. 
can mm. be helping our happiness and well-being or detracting from it. So in the case of a high care system, absolutely oxytocin is one of the drivers behind it that makes us much more prone to look for group reassurance and approval because ultimately uh, we crave human connection and belonging. It's a survival threat if we get ostracized from the group. Oxytocin and the related brain circuitry and the high care system serves that purpose. It serves the mm. purpose to alert us to what the group wants, what the group approves, how we can fit in, how we avoid being ostracized. That's its paradigm. It absolutely is a high rank drive, and this goes out to high rank people that can um, actually uh, identify that in themselves. This is something that a high rank drive uh, enables or, or causes um, because people with a high rank have plenty of testosterone to chase goals. Uh, but they also want to set ambitious goals because the mere chasing them, hunting the goal, does have some sense of purpose for them or has, has gets them some, some sense of satisfaction, right? So people with a high rank drive are a lot likelier to keep chasing forever the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. And like you said, a lot of them get stuck in this forever chasing. And of course you never get there because there's always someone with a bigger house. There's always someone with a newer car. It just doesn't, where does it lead? It never ends. There will always be someone with a bigger super yacht when you finally land in, you know, yeah. Cannes and, you know, then there's the next Russian billionaire with a bigger yacht. So it doesn't actually ever get you to the goal, but the mere chasing is something that's a little bit wired into the high rank kind of psychology. Um, and the trick is, and I think that's where you've benefited usually from your high care drive as well, um, to stop and think, you know, and, and feel into it and feel into the satisfaction you can, for example, uh, get from human connection and giving to the people you love and, and all of that because you've got that very, very strong drive. A lot of high rank people don't have that. It's actually a rare combination to combine high care and high rank. A lot of high-ranked people are much more one-dimensional. And for them, it's a lot easier, a lot harder to get out of that treadmill. Um, and most of the time, it only changes when they have a midlife crisis or a heart attack or a divorce that they get to question that. So we're about to dive into the final moments with Kat. And what she's going to speak about here, she's going to give more depth to what those five primal emotions actually are. And why it's so hard for us as human beings to understand exactly who we are and to answer that question, who am I? As I said, it's ever evolving, it's ever changing. She explains that there's actually an evolutionary reason for that. It's actually something about our makeup that makes it really hard to understand. Something about our environment that makes that really hard to understand. And I think it gives very good advice to all of us that to answer this question, we have to remove distractions. So there's um, research going back to one of the pioneers, Jacques Panksepp, who um, used deep brain stimulation to actually study those brain circuits that are associated with primal emotion systems. Uh, interestingly, those primal emotion systems exist in all mammals, not just humans, because they help all mammals thrive and survive. Right? So that's something important to remember. And so there are a couple of different ways to look at those primal emotion systems or to sum them up. I sum them up into five. 
Um, so the first one is care. We spoke about that a little bit. The second one is play. So a sense of play, rough and tumble play. You can see that in the wild. You can see that in toddlers. You can see that in boardrooms in a different way. You can also see rough and tumble play when there's banter and joking going on, right? Um, so that's the play system that makes us curious, creative, playful, you know, forming social bonds, testing limits. And then we've got the seek system. The seek system evolved to make us explore for new territories both in the realm of the physical world and in the realm of ideas, because um, that helps us, of course, push the boundaries and innovate. And then we've got the rank system, which we talked about, which is all about um, power, dominance, submission structures, regulating conflict in groups from an evolution perspective, um, and regulating access to material resources. And then finally, we've got what I, what I sum up as the guard drive. So that's actually a opposing force that is a more conservative, preserving drive that's designed to keep us alive. So it mm. includes things like disgust, um, anger, and sadness, you know, all designed to either um, withdraw from danger in the environment or go into attack to defend our territory or detect poisonous foods and spit them out to help us survive. So there's a couple of things in that guard system. You consistently hear people and come across people in, whether it be your research or your work, mm. who are struggling with the narrative of their life story, who are yeah. struggling to move forward and better understand who they are. What do you think is the main barrier to them answering that question of who am I and how okay. do I move forward? It is simply because of how our brains are built. And then secondly, of the world we designed around us, mm. right? So um, if we talk about the world we designed around us, we're more distracted, more fast moving than we've ever been. Um, we're continuously connected to our phones. So in essence, we've designed a world where we never ever have to be alone with our own thoughts, which is absolutely detrimental to introspection and self-reflection. Um, because if we don't want to, we can always distract ourselves. We never really have to think about who we are and why we behave the way we do, right? So that's the number one. I think the environment we've built makes it increasingly hard for us to be um, yeah, introspective and gain self-knowledge. And secondly, and that is a, uh, an, a tricky thing about the human brain itself, it is not designed for self-knowledge and insight. In fact, the contemporary philosopher Alain de Botton calls our brain faulty walnuts, like, like subtly but dangerously flawed machines, he calls them, um, that are flawed in ways that don't announce themselves to us. Meaning mm. we are not even unaware of how they function and how unaware we are of our emotional processes. <laughs> we are designed, they are designed actually to help us survive in the savannas, right? They mm. are brilliant at that, but they're not designed for us to gain greater self-knowledge. Most of what's happening in our mind be, remains behind. Be, uh, below the radar of our consciousness. And so by the very design of our mind, it is incredibly hard to know who we are, what our emotions are, how they drive our behaviors. We know our feelings, but that's like a lot more conscious. But our emotions, those hardwired emotion drives, we are not aware of. And so I think that's been one of my missions to make that explicit and hand that into people's hands to be able to discover it. Well, what a beautiful way to kick this off. For me, the reason I put this at the top of the podcast is that I believe, as I said before, listening to this from top to toe will inform you in correct order. You know, I think the first understand who you are 
informs how you take these lessons and action these insights on board throughout the rest of the podcast. I hope you enjoy the first moment with Katarina Kuhn. We're about to dive into some of my conversation with Joshua Hares, the founder of Porter James Sport. And I just absolutely love what Josh has to say about a dream day. Now, I'm not talking about sipping margaritas on yachts and kicking back in Khan. Maybe that's something that is a part of what you think to be your dream life. But I've found that when I consider the idea of how I can walk the line between ambition and appreciation, be it the ambition for the big goals that I have for my future and the appreciation that I have for the simple everyday things that are already in my life, this is a beautiful way of summing it up. What Josh is about to talk about is this moment, this breakthrough for himself. And I want to share that with you right now. I kind of had my dream job and I was unhappy. So I was like, what's, what's going on? So I, I spoke to my mentor and he's like, well, forget about your dream job. I want you to um, ask yourself, you know, get out your, your, your moleskin diary and write down a page, flesh it out, spend some time with it, write down what your dream day looks like. And um, ultimately like a dream day will inform a dream life. And then, you know, if you can find a way to, I guess, monetize or, or, or live your dream day every day, um, you'd hope life would be a lot, life should be, life shouldn't be too bad. Um, so that, that's the question I asked myself when I was 26, um, 27 and kind of um, fleshed it out for a little bit. And then I think ultimately what happened was, um, you know, in, in life, I think, you know, windows of opportunity present themselves and you've got to know when it's the right time to take a leap of faith and jump through that window of opportunity. And I think because I had done the work and, and I guess really understood uh, intimately um, that I was unhappy where I was, a new change needed to come so that when a change did present an opportunity to present itself, I jumped through that window and kind of took it. And that um, ultimately led me to, to, to create Porter James Sports. Can I ask you how hard it was to take the leap? Was it something that felt easy? Was it something that felt challenging? Because a lot of people ask me when I was personally in that situation and I left my career to do what I do now, they say, how did you summon the courage to do that? I, I think it happens in small parts, bro. Like, I don't think you, it's not like, it's not like I'm like, you know, earning 150 grand one day, then just walk into my boss's office, slam a resignation letter on the table and then I'm on like no money the next day it's like you know I was and still to this day like I I work my ass off like 80 hours a week plus and like I'm like doing multiple things and it's like a transition so like I would do um I was doing branding and advertising right and then I was like I was like I don't want to be here I want to control my own calendar I want to you know control the creative output I'm putting out so it's like, okay, right. So if I branch out into fashion, how can I do that? But then do the stuff too. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to freelance a little bit. I'm going to freelance 20, 25 hours a week. That will give me enough to pay myself whatever to cover the bills. And then that allows me to go 55K, I was like 55 hours on my side hustle. Um, I'm like, okay, cool. So that was like a transition entirely. And I was lucky that I, I guess I had a skill set that was able to kind of work at a, a freelance level, but also not really like I created that I saw that as like a stepping stone to kind of get to where I wanted so I think you need I think it's like a strategic decision and it's like I kind of worked out you know I was also when I was working that other company I was I was starting the clothing thing I was doing samples already you know like it wasn't like I'd 
you know, I was just working after hours and I think you just got to, you just kind of got to make that transition. Um, the, the lines are blurred, if you will. So we talk about that concept, right? And, and I love exactly what you're saying here, like thinking about and planning the transition because planning the transition is something I definitely didn't do. Like if I look back in hindsight, I wish I understood. And like, I don't regret anything because it's made me the man I am and I've learned so many lessons because of it. But if I look back in hindsight, understanding that the transition, maybe it was blissful ignorance, maybe it was a bit of naivety that I thought, well, man, I've got this idea and I've got this skill set and man, it's just going to, it's going to come to fruition straight away and it's going to be paying my bills and I'm going to be the the biggest podcast in Australia by the end of 2020 and life will be sweet. Definitely not the case. It's still not the case. And and, you know, three and a half years down the track, I think, how do I have understood and known maybe I could have taken my foot off the pedal? But I know that when I made the decision, I was at rock bottom. Like I couldn't have stayed any longer mentally, physically. My body was giving out of me. My mind was giving out of me. And I was in a place where I needed to change. I needed to transition. But it's likely because I didn't ask myself quality enough questions early. I didn't mm. ask myself why I felt the way that I felt. I didn't give myself the opportunity to to create that life or design that life, as you say, early enough in the picture. And so for me, it come quite, I guess, quite in a matter of all at once. What a moment. You know, it, it sounds so simple, yet it's so profound that when I sat down after this podcast and really thought about the words that Josh was saying, I realized that I can be so guilty of living consistently in ambition. And like I said, that's not unhealthy. It's not unhealthy to have ambition, to have lofty goals. It's a big part of who we are as human beings. And I think it's really important. But at the same time, if you can't appreciate the simple things that are a part of the present reality that you live, whatever you achieve will never be enough. You know, I sat down and when I wrote down, what does a dream or ideal day actually look like for myself? I realized that regardless of whether I was broke or had a hundred million dollars in the bank, Every day I'd still wake up and want to exercise for an hour. I realized that as often as I could, I'd want to dive in the ocean, feel the salt water on my skin, that I'd want to enjoy a coffee with Soph, the person that I love more than anything, and I want to catch up with my mates and my family. And I want to do some work that feels for me meaningful. You know, I want to flex that muscle of sharing human story, of connecting with people. These are the things for me that are so important, that inform an ideal day, a dream day. And guess what? Surprise, surprise, they're already a part of my life. And I'm so far from the big goals and lofty goals that I've set for myself. And it's a reminder that I have so much right now in my life to be grateful for. And I'm sure that if you sit down simply and look at what things are really important to you, you'll find that there are so many parts of your day-to-day life right now that are a part of that dream or ideal life. And I really encourage you to do this exercise. It's a great way of reverse engineering the kind of success that you're trying to have. Because if you sit down and you find that your job isn't giving you any source of meaning or happiness and it's not actually paying the bills, but it's something you feel like you're expected to do, maybe there's a career path that's better aligned for you. And I know that some people are in tricky situations. Let me tell you, I've had an incredible insight to life lately in the way that A lot of human beings really muster every bit of courage and energy every day to get up and go to jobs that are physically difficult, mentally difficult, incredibly draining and hard, just so that they can feed their families and pay their bills and get out of the tough situations they're in. 
And I'm acknowledging that. I know that life is really challenging, but I'm sure there's a few things that you can add into your life that will be a part of that dream day right now. And a lot of them are simple. Exercise, connection, the things that just put a smile on our face. As they say, most of the best things in life come free. So that was an incredible moment with Joshua Hares. And as we dive into this little second moment with him now, I just want you to think about that. But when you talk about a life well designed, that could be different and defined differently by everyone, right? So what did a life well designed look like to you? Like, give me the daily rundown. Um, at, a, at, a, at a more casual level to start, like, I didn't want to set an alarm, really. I wanted to, like, you know, I still want to get up at a certain time, but I didn't want to have to get up at, you know, six just to sit in traffic, you know what I mean? where I could get up at like seven and just like go down to my local cafe and work with a coffee after I've had a journal session or something. Um, I wanted to, I love training. So I wanted to like gym when it wasn't peak, peak time. I don't have to wait 20 minutes for a bench and ask some stranger, Hey bro, how much, how many more sets you got? Um, I wanted to, um, wear whatever I wanted to work. Like, you know, some days my uniform sweatpants and a hoodie and like, that's cool. That's how I dress, you know? And I don't, and I, and I, want to have the freedom to do that um i want to make my lunch fresh from home you know i don't want to have to pack in a little lunch bag so all that sort of stuff but um at a more deeper level um basically it came down to control of my calendar um like you know not having to like you know work to um what my boss said or 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 you know have a client whip on a wednesday because this is when we have our weekly whip sort of thing but um I think also like creativity, like I was working with big global companies, like let's say Mercedes Benz or Nestle and whatever. And it's like, when you work with those brands, creativity is really defined at a global level. And you're kind of having to conform to, um, Hey, this is what this brand's look and sounds like. And I get that that's consistency and it's how you build a global brand. But like, ultimately, like I, I had ideas and I wanted to express them and I wanted to, um, you know, have autonomy on my creativity and, and, and see them out um so that was a, a big thing and then also people probably bro like you know at these big corporate companies i was working with or and even in a lot of the time people are just there to collect a salary you know um there's no life behind their work i'm sure you know this um whereas like say even today like outside of the fashion space i'm talking to you like you like inspired me already and it's like you're just connecting with people that fill you with life and i wanted that but on like at like an every meeting type thing rather than like a I've got to go seek it out and that, that's just because I guess you intentionally get to or you get to choose now who 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 you sum yourself who you surround yourself with well I'm sure you can tell why I've become such a great friend with this guy it's no surprise to me that you know when I was listening to him I really felt like I was looking in the mirror so much of what he had to say and so many of his ambitions and the things, the simple things that he appreciates in life are so closely aligned with mine. And, you know, I know that there would be a bunch of you who can resonate with that too. So I want to thank Josh for being a part of the podcast, for being a great friend. And we're going to get ready to dive into our moments with Will Ahmed. As I explained before, Will is um, a huge success story. You know, $3.6 billion business with over 550 employees. It's no surprise that Will um, has figured out what allows him to perform, you know, at the highest levels. Whoop is a company that essentially I've fallen in love with. 
for, for about six months before having him on the podcast, I've been utilizing their product and found that it improved my sleep. It improved my day-to-day energy. I'm getting fitter. I'm getting stronger. I actually feel in the best shape of my life. And I attribute a lot of that to the knowledge of, you know, what works for my body. And Whoop's given me that. Um, essentially, it tracks your strain, which is sort of the, the output of your body through exercise and stress and the day-to-day activities that we do as human beings it then looks at our sleep and measures how that informs our recovery it looks at things like heart rate variability respiratory rate um, and you know just informs so many of the decisions i make around my day-to-day exercise and in this clip it's about a five minute chunk of the podcast will speaks about you know as the ceo of a wellness brand what he does as far as sleep recovery training and nutrition to optimize his life. And I love this word, optimize. He says, I optimize for being a CEO, not just for being a regular athletic human being. And I think it's important you ask yourself, what are you trying to optimize for? You know, so many of us look to a movement on social media now, which is really healthy in so many ways, but like people going out and doing these crazy runs. And I love it. It excites the hell out of me. But I found for myself this year, I was trying to do the marathons, the ultra marathons, the daily run challenges that were no longer aligned with what I was trying to achieve. And so for me, I had to ask myself, what am I optimizing for? And that informed the way that I've trained for the rest of the year. And one of the answers for me was that my training right now has to give me more energy than it takes from me. And there's obviously days in which, you know, it's not going to be aligned with that. For example, this morning I ran 15 hilly kilometers and took a little bit of energy from the body. But I adjust my pace, I adjust the way that I eat, the way that I recover to make sure that it gives me more energy so I can be behind the mic and give my all so that I can go to work this week and be topped up. And so I want you to take a moment to listen to Will Ahmed explain how he looks after his health and the practices that he follows that you can too. You know, as someone who has founded a business that is all about health, it's about getting the most out of your physiology, getting the most out of your life. What does a week in your life look like? It's a good question. And I, I will say that I, I would say that I mostly optimize my life as a CEO versus directly as a human. And so there are certain things that I would do differently if I was entirely optimizing for being a human. But I think that's what everyone goes through. You know, everyone's dealing with, well, what are they trying to accomplish? What's the sacrifice that comes with that? So you know, in a week in which I'm not traveling and I would probably travel a lot less again, if I was just trying to optimize whoop data in a week in which I'm not traveling, I exercise, you know, four or five times a week. I've found that that's actually a little bit more optimal for me than trying to exercise almost every day, both in terms of recovery time, but also in terms of just how much time I have in a day. I like to still play squash competitively, so I'll do that, uh, you know, maybe once or twice a week. I work out with a trainer a couple times a week, which has been great. And then I'll throw in some new, you know, maybe activity I'm trying. Last week it was um, Pilates or bar. Uh, I've gotten more into yoga. Um, I play in a soccer league. So, you know, introducing these sort of different uh, fun activities. I play golf. So I, I like to have um, an active lifestyle 
and certainly um and certainly exercise is a big a big part of that uh i eat three meals a day uh and no snacks uh so my my diet i would say is fairly uh simple uh, a lot of protein, but I also eat carbs and vegetables, try to avoid dairy at all costs as I'm allergic to it. I, uh, I try to get into the office around, uh, you know, 830 or so, and I'm probably there uh, until seven or eight, depending on the day. Maybe I'll get out of there a little bit earlier, depending on what I'm working out. And uh like to have dinner with my wife every night. My bedtime routine has gotten fairly dialed from mm. Whoop, so maybe I'll give your audience a few tips in this process. I'd love. I think I need a few tips on this process because if you can't tell, brother, we're yeah. on video today for everyone watching or listening on, and there's some serious bags under my eyes this morning. So I'm interested to uh, get sleep time routine, my man. You look good. The <laughs> uh, so the routine. Uh, it starts actually a few hours before you go to bed even. So ideally you're eating, um, you know, uh, over three hours before you go to bed. I've seen at least for me personally that eating too close to bed disrupts the quality of my sleep. Um, I like to wear blue light blocking glasses in the evening. So again, optimizing as a CEO versus optimizing as a human. If you were really just pure optimization, you wouldn't look at a screen in the evening, you know, things like your phone, television sets, they're creating light. Often they can um, make you think about uh, stressful things like work and this and that. Um, but I'm on my phone right up until the minute I go to bed because I'm answering emails. I'm looking at things around the world because we have a global business now. And uh, what's nice about blue light blocking glasses is that in wearing these red tinted glasses, it blocks all of the light emitting from screens. So television sets, iPhones, iPads, so forth. And that um, blue light is what activates your mind and tells you to stay awake. And so if you can block that light, uh, it makes you naturally sleepy. So the I highly recommend these glasses. They dramatically improved my sleep quality and my recovery scores on Whoop. And Whoop actually makes these glasses now. So those are worth checking out. And then it, a lot of it goes back to the bedroom environment. So darker, colder, better air quality, quiet, all these things are critically important. Ideally, you're going to bed and waking up at similar times. Uh, so I'm, you know, I skew a little bit on the later end. I'm maybe like an 1130 to 630 or 1130 to seven kind of guy. So I'll you know, between seven and seven and a half hours in bed. Maybe if it's a harder week, I'll be closer to six, but I've gotten good at making the hours in bed that I spend high quality hours. So that mm. hopefully gives you a summary of, of uh, a week. Just an incredible moment there with Will. And, you know, anytime you get the opportunity to sit down with a billionaire founder and CEO, um, you know, you're going to listen all ears, as they say. And I just had the best time listening to Will Ahmed, um, ironically, with bags under my eyes because I had a terrible sleep the night before. But um, Will is just such a, a generous guy, um, a genuine human being at that too. And one of the things that I'll compliment Will on is for a man who has such a hectic calendar day today. And let me tell you, 
when he walked into that room, there were staff everywhere organizing his microphone, his headphones, setting his computer up. He'd bounce straight from one meeting. He had another one to go to immediately after. It was five o'clock in the afternoon in Boston. And I could not compliment this man more on his ability to sit. And from the minute he gave me eye contact and said, hi, Bradley, he did not let his eyes stray anywhere else. He was locked in. He was intensely focused on the objective at hand, which was to have a highly valuable conversation for the podcast. So I want to thank Will, his incredible team at Whoop, who helped me bring this and put this together. And I want to flow into our fourth guest on the podcast today, Dr. Charlie Teo. This really is so simple yet profound. I talk about purpose all the time. It's a big part of what informs the work I do. Um, it gives me a sense of fulfillment and meaning. And I define my purpose as the ability to uplift and inspire hope in others through story. I know that for Charlie, it's, it's slightly different. His purpose is linked to his work in the medical field in you know, hopefully curing people of brain tumors or at least extending people's lives or quality of lives so that they can enjoy time with the people they love. And he just has an incredible story to tell in this piece of the podcast that really alludes to why this has to be a major focus for all of us, why it can't be forgotten, why purpose is golden and giving us a sense of fulfillment so that when we finally say hoorah, good day at the end of our lives, we can look back and be really proud of the life that we lived so really soak in this moment, be all ears, have your attention absolutely as locked, as locked in as it can be, I should say, because this is just a really powerful and profound moment. I've always thought that the only thing I've done is what I think all doctors should do. I, I really don't know why I've been given the accolades that I've been given when all, all I do is treat patients well. Mm. I respect patient autonomy. Uh, I treat a patient like they were a member of my own family and I often put myself in their shoes and think to myself well what would I want if I was in that position and uh, I guess uh, the reason I've been sort of uh, identified as being someone special is because many other doctors don't do that mm. and so that makes me stand out a little bit but really I promise you Brad I don't think I am a hero. I don't think I've done anything different to what I should have done. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of what I've done, I've had a very blessed career. I've, I've just loved my life and I've loved looking after all my patients. Man, that's a beautiful sentiment. I really like that. When you talk about the position you're in as a neurosurgeon, that is not something that you fall into. That is a, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a very conscious choice that this is an area of medicine in which I want to study. And practice. It actually wasn't. In fact, I had a conscious choice not to practice neurosurgery. Wow. Yeah, That's was, a surprise. Yeah. When I was a medical student and then when I was a young intern, resident, doing general terms, I was exposed to neurosurgery at my chagrin. I hated it. I knew that it was a very unforgiving specialty. I knew that if I'd made a mistake, someone could die. And uh, I really didn't understand neurosurgery, so I would avoid it like the plague. Mm. I, I can remember in the emergency room at Nepean Base Hospital, where I worked as an intern, if the patient came in with a head injury, I'd quickly slip their chart under the other person's and get the, <laughs> and get the next one. I was just so fearful of neurosurgery and making a mistake. But you're right, it's all serendipity. Uh, I started doing paediatric surgery as my specialty, 
And then while I was doing paediatric surgery, the paediatric neurosurgery resident fell ill and I was asked to take over his chores. And so I was thrust into neurosurgery against my will and uh, uh, against my better judgment because I, I really didn't think I'd be a good neurosurgeon. And thankfully, I had great mentors and I found it incredibly stimulating and the rest is history. Wow, mate, that's incredible because it's something that is so complex. Mm. You would think that mm. it's so conscious. Yeah, yeah. But I guess you've come into the space of, of the medical world because you obviously had a, a willingness to help people. Was there any family history in that space? Yeah, absolutely. My father's a doctor. Sorry, he was a doctor. He's dead now. Sorry, uh, My mother was a nurse. Uh, she's still alive, but she's in a nursing home, unfortunately, with dementia. Uh, but I guess, you know, they never really tried to push me into medicine. In fact, I can, I can, if I recall correctly, they kind of tried to uh, turn me off medicine. Mm. And so you, you're right, it was a calling uh, that, you know, I wanted to do all these other things. But when I got into medicine, I just, I loved it. From the minute I started my medical degree... Uh, until today, I've just lo- loved medicine. What is it about medicine that you think you loved? Well, without saying too corny, it gives you the ability to help people. Mm. And I'll just, I tell this one little story, and I, I tell it to young people so they understand why I do what I do and, and why I think they should do something like I, I'm doing. And that is that I was fortunate enough to go on a camping trip through the Northern Territory and there are a few rich people on the trip from America, and we got to know them very well, sitting around the camp fire, mm. that's when you really open up. For sure. And I will never forget that all three of them, during that one week on that tour, broke down in tears and felt that their lives were worthless because they'd clearly made a lot of money, but on reflection, they couldn't see that they'd made any difference to the world or difference to other people. And in other words, their goal in life was to make money, and at the end of the day, they achieved that, but they couldn't, uh, no matter how hard they tried, justify their lives and, mm. and feel like they had done something good in, in life. And that's the one thing that you'll never have a problem with in medicine because your whole sure. job is helping other people and, you know, and, and fixing them or, or trying to extend their lives. Uh, so at the end of the day, when you finish a day uh, as a doctor... It's incredibly, uh, you, you don't consciously think about this, but if you sat down and consciously thought, did I have a good day today? The answer will always be yes, because you've helped someone, you've diagnosed something, you've treated someone, you've held someone's hand, you've helped someone through a terrible part of their lives. So no matter how much money you make or don't make, at the end of the day, you can feel happy that you've, uh, you've contributed. So I just love this, and I, I really want to leave you with, um, I guess, a bit of a tip bit of a tip take it as you will I won't preach it I'll just leave some breadcrumbs as to what's worked for me how I found purpose in my own life when I felt I'd gone astray and that for me was two questions that were informed by Jay, Jay Shetty actually the former monk and New York Times best-selling author you know incredible host of the podcast too and Jay says that purpose is asking yourself two questions the first is what am I passionate about what am I good at what do I have gifts in And whatever the answer to that is, how can I use that thing in service of others? And for me, that first answer was I'm really passionate about story. I feel that I'm great in conversation with people and that that's a skill of mine if I can say that about myself. But also I know that when I use that in service of other people, 
I can uplift and inspire hope in them. And that's something that I really wanted to do through the podcast, my work on stage, and just what I do in my everyday life when I get the opportunity to connect with people. I really want to dive into this next piece with Gary Jubilin. It really speaks about how our greatness is a result of our obsession, but on the flip side, our obsession can be our downfall. And I find that to be quite a fickle beast, right? Obsession is so fickle. I remember Tim Grover, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan's trainer, who says, interested people watch obsessed people change the world. And I do not doubt that for a second. I think there's so much validity to what he says, but also remembering that there's a difference between being a great human being and being a good human being. Greatness is often seen in those who reach the pinnacle of their sport, their industry, their field. But rather, when you look at those people, often you see the story of someone who's broken, who doesn't have great relationships, who feels as though they've been led a bit astray by their hunger, their drive. And whilst I think that all those accomplishments are incredible, if you can balance them with that high care as well as Kat spoke about at the start of the episode and those things that are really meaningful to you. This is why it's so important to understand yourself and understand that first lesson from the podcast today. It really helps. So I want you to think about this as you hear Gary explain it. And we'll play this first clip. It seems as though for me, if you look at the lead detective in any of these crime series... Dysfunctional. He's always a bit dysfunctional, he's a bit lonely, he doesn't really have a life outside of it. Do you think that reflects, is like a true depiction of maybe what you experienced or is it different? Yeah, I I look at that and those those depictions and sometimes I think I'm just a character out of of that. Like it's it's almost, you know, come home and uh, you got the half-eaten pizza for for dinner and then, yeah, you're sitting there in a, a, a flat on your own. I, I went through two um, marriage separations. Not not proud of that. You know, it wasn't what I set out to do. It wasn't what I thought my life would do. How much work impacted on it, I, I don't know. But my focus when I was on a homicide was, yeah, very much focused on the, on that homicide and all the investigation. You, you're probably running a few at the same time. So I'm sure it had an impact. And after I left the cops, I made a point of going back and speaking to friends and family and almost apologising that, yeah, I was so absent because I was doing my career and they, they allowed me that absence but were always mm. there for me when I got back to help put me back together again because sometimes those investigations would uh, would wear you down. But, yeah, the, the way the dysfunction that uh, detectives are portrayed, I think it's the nature of the work. You've really... It's almost... And people don't want to say it because it can have a negative con- a connotation to it but you've almost got to become obsessive on the hard Mm. ones. There's some investigations that it's like tracking an elephant through the snow. It's pretty easy. You just follow the bouncing ball. Other ones, you've really got to become um, obsessed on it to uh, try and get results. Or if you don't get results, make sure you've done everything you can. And so, yeah, there have been many a night (laughs) or many a day when I've uh, I've I've been sitting at home and uh, you know cook a cook a meal for yourself and have a beer, go to bed and get up and, and do it the next day, and there's been other times where I'm almost and I'm, I'm being pretty honest here. You're almost running away from the chaos that is your personal life, and I come into work on my days off and uh, yeah if I'm not working this weekend. Well, I'm not doing anything here. I'll go to work and uh, it's probably more worthwhile me being in there. What an incredible moment, you know. I- I love how Gary speaks about and and openly puts his hand up and says that, you know, I am that dysfunctional detective that you've seen on every TV series. He speaks about, unfortunately, the the breakdown of two marriages and how 
he found it incredibly hard to be both a great detective and great husband or great family man. And, you know, I just have all the time in the world for Gary. He come to my home, spent time with me and was so generous, such a good human being. And I have just the utmost respect for this guy and, and how he really owns his truth. And essentially owning his truth is about, you know, what this second clip encompasses. You know, there's a quote that I shared with Gary and it's something like this from Batman. I butcher this every time, but it's the hero lives long enough to see himself become the villain. And I just think this is so interesting, you know, and like this is why the self-knowledge is so important to know what your values are. And you have to live and die by your values. We refer to Charlie Teo in this clip as well and how he's been incredible at owning the truth, the reality of his, of his circumstances, not shying away from them, but knowing that he acted according to his values. And you'll hear this in this second clip with Gary Jubilant. And you mentioned really early on in this chat, you said that, you know, I don't know whether the word was you're not ashamed or you're unapologetic yep. to, you know, what you've been charged yeah. for recording those conversations. And I fucking love that because mm. I think, you know, we had a chat off camera about it. Yep. You know, you, you said you listened to my Charlie Teo episode. I knew that episode would get good and bad publicity yep. because he's a polarizing character that some people agree with. Some people obviously don't. I fucking love Charlie. Yep. I think what he's done is heroic. I'm, I'm behind him. It's why I brought him on the podcast to have a conversation. And I made a decision before that podcast. I believe in what this man's done. Mm. I support it. I respect him. I'm going to have a conversation and knowing that I'm coming to the table personally with the right intention yep. and I'm expressing what I authentically and honestly believe, whatever the consequences are, I'm happy to bear them. Yeah. You know, I think it sounds very similar for yourself. Uh, look, you, you've, got to, you've got to own what you've done. I, I think, it, and look, I make mistakes every day and I'll, I'll make a mistake today, I'll make a mistake tomorrow. We all, all make mistakes. Own up if it's a mistake, but if you believe in something and... That's probably a, there's a bit of a square peg in a round hole in the police because I, I took issue on a, a couple of things on during my career. But it wasn't for personal gain. It was just because I, I truly believed that was the right thing. When I was charged, and I, I won't bore people with it because, you know, on the scale of things, when you look at uh, what, what happened to me compared to, you know, what's happened with the people who've lost loved ones and people who've been murdered, it pales into insignificance. But... I could have taken a knee and gone because there were certain people that wanted to, you know, break me. I could have taken a knee and said, "I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't do it again." Blah blah blah, and it would have sort of blown over. But I am, you know, this is my opinion. Other people might have other opinions. I can justify what I did, and uh, I wasn't going to play their games. I wasn't prepared to do it. Now, you have to be an idiot to cut off your nose to spite your face, type thing. Like, why didn't I just, you know, continue on? There was a principle involved, and if I sold my principles out on that, and I, I pride myself in my ethical behaviour as a police officer and my principles, I don't think I'd, I'd be comfortable with myself. So you pay a, pay a price for that. And, you know, Charlie's situation, he's, uh, you know, he's stuck his head up and people have gone at him. And uh, I listened to that podcast you did with him, and I thought the thing that I liked about it, he didn't shy away from anything. No, he owned it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I had a similar conversation with him. I don't know if you recall this moment on the podcast, but I, I referenced the Batman quote. Now, I was quite a Batman fan as a kid. It was <laughs> okay. my, my first dream was to be Batman. Um, I realized I'm not going to say I love Batman because I became a police officer. Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing yeah. is, right, so let's talk about a moment in, I think it's The Dark Knight. There's a quote where 
somebody says you, if you're a hero for long enough or if you're a hero and you live long enough you eventually become the villain and for me that speaks to tall poppy culture and we spoke about that being a theme in that conversation with yeah. charlie if it's not out of line for me and, and tell me if it yep. is because i don't want to put you in hot water but are there reasons why you think people wanted you out of the force I, you, you've raised it, I'll, I'll address it. I, I don't raise it like the tall poppy because if I do, it sounds like, oh, he's, he's up himself. He just thinks, yeah, he was better than better than people. As I said, I, I would stand up on, on things that, uh, yeah, other people wouldn't necessarily think I should do as a police officer. I marched on Parliament four times um, down Macquarie Street with Aboriginal families protesting about the way that their matter had been um, treated. That didn't make me popular in an organisation. I also, and it was just, it could have been any one of, you know, a hundred or so police that were involved in, in different things. They did an underbelly series, uh, Underbelly Badness, that was based around the investigation I was leading when Underbelly was, you know, the top show in the country. I noticed a change in things from, from there. I noticed I, I almost had a target on my back. As silly as it mm. sounds, we're talking a, a TV series. And people often, I've been criticised, and this again, people's people's opinions that I, I sought um, sought recognition or, or sought time in the media. The reality was that I investigated for 25 years investigating homicides. There's probably three investigations that attracted media attention. There's all these countless other ones that I didn't. And mm. the reason they got uh, media attention is because of the nature nature of the crimes. The only investigation that I actively pushed for media attention was the murder of three Aboriginal kids because no one cared. They were mm. the Barrable kids, Colin Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy, who were murdered in uh, Barrable in 1990 and 91. I took over in uh, 96 investigating that, uh, 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 reinvestigating that investigation. I gave evidence to the parliamentary inquiry and I said we didn't properly resource it, it wasn't done, done properly. And people would come to me, members of the media would come to me to talk about other high-profile jobs I, I was involved in. And I'd say, well, we've had three kids killed by a serial killer in a small country town that the police, because of a whole range of things, and racism also came into it, I wasn't shying away, didn't properly resource the investigation. Uh, well, yeah, we can't really report on that because I don't think people, people would be interested in it because it's um, the Aboriginal kids. It's changed now. I think we've yeah. changed. So, yeah, I proactively generated interest on, on uh, that investigation. As for the other ones, I was just doing my job. It's powerful stuff. You know, it's really important to remember, you know, one of the Three Mates episodes we've done throughout the year of the podcast, myself, my good friends Joey Plum and Ty Grieve, is we spoke about how important values are, you know, and, and we all identified in particular, five really important values that we wanted to consistently live by. And I would encourage that of absolutely everyone. Know your values. Know the kind of human being that you're trying to be. Because if you can wake up, look at yourself in the mirror, and respect the reflection staring back at you, if you can put your head on the pillow, and as Matthew McConaughey says, an honest man's pillow is his peace of mind, if you can do that every night and go to sleep and know that you're a good human according to your values... You, know, you can't lie to yourself about that. And ultimately, you'll feel a sense of peace if you can say that you are living according to your values. And I just love how Gary owns the fact that, yeah, he recorded those conversations and he felt it was the right thing to do and he felt that it wasn't out of line. Um, you know, and I love his dedication to his work. 
So without further ado, I want to play the final moment from the podcast, a moment that has been incredibly profound. Bruce Bryan is just such an unbelievable human. Well, in fact, he's not unbelievable because it's very believable. We got to hear the story. We got to hear how this man turned the biggest adversity that he will arguably ever have to face, a bigger adversity than most of us can ever fathom or imagine, into an opportunity to grow, to be better. As he says, to be better, not bitter. You know, I love this clip where he speaks about the desire to be like a dandelion. And he'll explain a little bit more of that in the clip. But Bruce spent 29 or 30 years behind bars in Sing Sing Correctional Facility for a murder he didn't commit. He's now been freed. He's been out for, you know, around nine months now, I'd say. But I first heard his story on Joe Rogan's podcast alongside his lawyer, Josh Dubin. Bruce and Josh sat down and spoke about the journey to get Bruce out of prison, how he'd originally um, written to Josh and said to Josh, I believe we've got a case to get me out here because I did not commit this crime. And I just love the way that Bruce shares his story. I love the insight that he has. He's one of those gentlemen that you can tell is highly educated, who has come from a challenging background but ultimately turned his life around. It really alludes to the power of perspective. And I want to leave this as the final moment, the final lesson from the podcast, because I can guarantee you, ladies, gents, that throughout the course of your life, you will face adversity. Sometimes it's, it's some adversity that you're willing to face. You know, you sign up for it, you put your hand up and you say, you know, it's my turn to face this challenge. Other times it's completely unwilling and it hits you by surprise, it blindsides you. And we can all speak to moments in our life where we've experienced that. And I hope for your sake, it's not 30 years unjustified behind bars. But I know at some point in your life, you will face that adversity. And if you can, you know, look to perspective, being optimistic, seeing the positivity, seeing the opportunity to grow through adversity, you know, it will just absolutely change your life. It has for me with my cystic fibrosis and the challenges that I've faced. And so I want to leave you with this moment with Bruce Bryan. I just don't know how you are as positive as you are after the experience you've been through. I did hear though in your story that when you entered the system, you made a decision at one point that you were going to be, as you described, a dandelion, someone who thrived in any environment. Talk to me about that decision and in the moments that led to that decision. It wasn't, um, it wasn't an easy decision because initially Initially, when you find yourself in that environment, it's, it's, it's depressing. It's, it's extremely depressing. Um, prison is a very volatile environment. Prison is a very cold environment. And I don't just mean physically cold. I mean cold with respect to heartless, being heartless, being, having a lack of compassion and empathy on both sides, um, the officers as well as many of the incarcerated people. So. It's a very cold environment and it's a very uh, dark place. And you have to make a decision at some point to not be a part of the darkness and to not be a part of that, 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 that ice cold, but to try to develop your own heat. It's up to you to create your own heat. And the only way that you, for me, was to create that was one, to embrace my spirituality and to begin, you know, um, uh, strengthening my faith in God, right? Strengthening my faith in God, um, surrounding myself with the right guys, 
you know, the old timers from a group called the Resurrection Study Group, prisoners that had been in 20, 30 years prior to me coming in, um, that helped me understand that I had two choices. I could either become bitter or I can become better. And I chose the latter. Um, but you still have to find the resolve within yourself, right? You got to find that resilience to say, all right, these are the decisions I'm going to make. I'm going to um, not cry myself to sleep as much. I'm going to um, not walk the yard and just hang out as much. I'm going to begin focusing on mind, body, and soul, right? So I'm going to develop a, a physical fitness routine. I'm going to develop a spiritual practice, which for me was going to church and you know, accepting Christ in my life and going to church on, on the weekends and just trusting God. And then I had the blessing was that I had that family support uh, that became the wind beneath my wings, right? That helped me push forward and find out that where I was didn't have to define who I was mm. or who I can. And so I began to, you know, I began to meditate. I began to write down affirmations, um, on the wall, I began to use vision boards. Um, I did whatever it took, reading the scripture. If I took a scripture out the Bible, um, you know, walk by faith and not by sight. And I pin it on my wall, you know, uh, and I began to read it every morning. Then I began to dive into what I enjoyed doing, which was reading, reading books like Man's Search for Meaning by Victor oh, Frankl. Um, uh, the Road Less Traveled by Dr. Scott Peck. And reading, you know, reading different books like that, that helped me understand that the, the real journey starts within. Mm -hmm. The real journey starts within in, in engaging in deep reflection and introspection and finding out who you are, um, you know, embracing those values, you know, reconnecting to those values that your parents instilled in you. Right, that you know were true and that help you become who you are. And understanding that this didn't have to be who you are. Prison is not who is prison is a place that many people find themselves in, even those who are physically not there. Right. So there's the prison of drug addiction, there's a prison of uh, of, of domestic violence, of abuse. Um, there's also the prison of depression and mental health and and sometimes there's a prison of our of our worldview that keeps us uh, captivated inside of these prison walls. They may not be physical, but they could very well be mental. So mm -hmm. I realized that I can I can be incarcerated. However, I can still take take on the mindset and construct a prison life, a life that allowed me to to thrive despite being behind walls. A life that allowed me to uh, to smile because happiness comes from a deep, much deeper place than a physical location. So these yeah, are the things I love that what I, you're saying. Yes, these are the things so that I began to meditate on. I began to meditate on, and I found myself really embracing, you know, those practices and those principles, and just, you know, allowing myself to. My self-talk to be to be a lot better than where I was, you know. Three incredibly powerful things I take from that are traits of purpose, resilience, and perspective. Things that I think no matter what situation you're in as a human being will serve you incredibly well. And I know that 
they've definitely served me in areas of my life. And it's almost a very stoic mindset of it's not what you're challenged by, but rather how you respond to it. That really stands the test of the outcomes you have in your life. And then you also, you also, um, when you change the way you look at things, things change the way that they look. What's the most valuable asset that we all have as human beings, right? It's time, right? And many people that are not behind prison walls that are free, they don't have time to do some of the things that they want to do. They don't have time to read. Many don't have time to meditate. Some don't have time to exercise. Many of them don't take the time to reflect and engage in introspection. So what I had was the most valuable commodity there is. I had time. Well, there it is. My favorite six moments from the podcast this year. And I say favorites very loosely because, God, we had so many incredible conversations this year. But it was these particular six moments that as I went back and looked on the year that was, I just remember them having such a profound impact on me. And so I wanted to share that with you. I hope that what we do, not only in this episode today, but throughout the course of the year and the year to come, is that I can leave almost a trail of breadcrumbs for you. A trail of breadcrumbs that when you find yourself a little bit lost or in the face of adversity, you can look to those breadcrumbs as your way out. They can be the lessons, the value that my guests and I can provide so that we can all learn, we can all grow. And as much as you do as a listener of the show, I do it too. I get such a privilege being able to sit here and learn from these incredible humans face to face. And it's a privilege for me to share that with you. So I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you loved it and enjoyed it. But don't get too upset because there's a little bit more to come yet for 2023. I have some great episodes lined up for December and I have a new exciting change planned for 2024. It'll be a change of the format, a change of the podcast as you know it, much of the same good stuff with a new little twist that I think will absolutely set your soul on fire and get you excited for the year to come. So thank you. If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend that you know would find it valuable. We know through all the stats that if you can share this with a friend, it will grow the show astronomically. It's like compound interest. One share creates more and more, and hopefully we can get this to a place where it's providing value across the country and the globe. Thank you so much for tuning in to A Lot To Talk About. It is your host, Bradley J. Dribra. Of course, you're more than welcome to call me Brad, and I'll see you next time. (music) 